Today, we come to an end of our study in the book of Esther. This series, I entitled The Queen's Gambit because it's the move in the chess game that puts the player at risk, but opens up possibilities later in the game. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to review the story one more time. Then I want to see the role of the annual memorial of Purim and how it plays out in the life of the nation of Israel, and then to think of how memorials play out in our own experience as well. So let's go to the story in a nutshell. So the Persian Empire of the fourth century BC extended over 127 different provinces, and all the Jews were its subjects. There was a king on the throne by the name of Ahasuerus. He ruled over the entire empire, he was conducting a series of international meetings uh, whereby he would plan out his next event that is an advancement against the empire of Greece. While he has all these dignitaries surrounding him, what we find is that he wants to bring out his wife. Her name is Vashti, and she is his trophy wife. And in this series of meetings, we see that he demands Vashti to come before him to show off her beauty before his guests. And Vashti refuses to comply. Uh, she rebels against the king's demand. And so advice is given to King Ahasuerus to depose her as queen and to seek out a new queen. So King Ahasuerus orchestrates an international beauty pageant to find a new queen. There's this Jewish girl by the name of Esther that found favor in his eyes and she becomes the new queen. And yet she refuses to, to divulge the identity of her nationality. So she becomes queen and she is in power with him for a number of years. But meanwhile, there is a man by the name of Haman that comes to the prime position of being prime minister of the empire. So we have moved from Vashti to Esther, and now we find that Haman is in the center of power as second in command to King Ahasuerus. Uh, this anti-Semitic man uh, demands that he be uh, given great adulation and uh, that he, in fact, might even be worshipped as a god in the flesh and convinces King Ahasuerus uh, to put an order in place whereby everywhere he goes, the people would bow down to him. There's another individual in the story by the name of Mordecai. He is the leader of the Jews. He is Esther's cousin. Uh, he raises Queen Esther because she is an orphan child, and he refuses to bow down to Haman. So he defies this order, and as he defies this order, uh, what we find is Haman becomes incensed about it and convinces the king to issue a decree to order the extermination, not just of Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people. He determines a date for this extermination, and the lot falls on the 13th of Adar. This is a date that is chosen by the pure, P-U-R, 
and it is uh, translated from Hebrew and English lots, the uh, rolling of lots, if you will, to determine the date. So we see now the focus has shifted from Haman to Mordecai. Mordecai begins to galvanize all the Jewish people, convincing them to repent, to fast, and to pray to God, because there is this decree now that is in place for the extermination of the Jewish people. Mordecai will convince Esther to get involved, and what we find is here is the queen's gambit. Will she go before the king and request an intervention to reverse this decree that uh, Haman has put in place? So Esther listens to the request of Mordecai. She requests that all people pray for three days. And at the end of three days, she makes a statement to Mordecai that becomes abs absolutely the tagline of the book. And that is, if I perish, I perish. I'll go before the king and I will make a request. Mordecai says, perhaps you have been put in place for such a time as this. So here's the queen's gamut. She makes this very risky move to go into the presence of the king and ask the king to join her for a feast. And she wants to invite Haman as well. And now the shift is from Esther to King Ahasuerus. What is going to occur in this feast? At this feast, what we find is that the first feast that she has, she backs off. We don't know if it is out of fear or if this is some type of um, uh, way of prepping the second uh, uh, request, uh, not the request, but the feast. And at this second feast, she will finally reveal to the king, number one, her Jewish identity, number two, this decree to exterminate all the Jews, which included her. Well, King Ahasuerus blows his top. He goes out from this second feast for a little while. And as he comes back in, while Haman begins to plead for his life to Queen Esther, Ahasuerus believes that he is assaulting the queen. And so he demands that Haman be executed on a gallows that has been built by Haman to execute Mordecai. Haman is hanged in the process. And in a reversal of fortunes, what we find is that Mordecai becomes appointed as prime minister in his stead. And now a new decree needs to be put into place to grant the Jews the right to defend themselves of this first decree. Uh, and so on the 13th of Adar, a second decree is placed that allows the Jews to mobilize themselves to build an army over the course of months and so that they might kill their enemies. This occurs on the 13th and the 14th day of Adar. And what we find taking place here is the Jews defend themselves, they save their lives, and chapter 9 of the book of Esther is memorialized. And there is this annual memorial that takes place here. And I wanna read for you in Esther chapter nine, and you'll find this in your liturgy as well, but in 
Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, all the way to chapter 10, verse 3, we read the account that, that not only kind of elevates Mordecai in his greatness, but really tells us of this reversal of fortunes that takes place where on the 13th of Adar, the Jews will defend themselves. They will celebrate their victory over their enemies. So beginning in verse 20 of Esther chapter 9, it says, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, that's the same person as Ahasuerus, both near and far. To have them celebrate, listen, annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, giving a presence of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his son should be impaled on the poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what, would ha what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Then chapter 10 is only three verses. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to the distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annuals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews.
So in this text, we're primarily told about how this annual memorial of Purim is established. It is built upon this reversal. And what we find is that the Jews memorialized and made this a day of celebration. And it was to honor those who suffered and died to examine the past and address contemporary issues in the future. So think about memorials for a moment. Memorials are not unique to the Jewish people. All people do it in one way or another. Think about the cycle of our own calendar year. We have our own days of celebration for those victories and values that we hold dear to us. Memorialization is a process that satisfied the desire to honor those who suffered and died during conflict and as a means to examine the past and address contemporary issues. And sometimes it will promote social recovery. Uh, sometimes it will crystallize in a sense, uh, a sense of victimization or injustice or a discrimination or the desire for revenge even. Sometimes it celebrates an unexpected or a miraculous victory. To see the emotional power of a memorial, one needs often to look at the emotion that is found in the monuments and the traditions that are accompanying that memorial. So let's think for a few moments of some of the memorials in our own culture. Sometimes they are found in some of the monuments, maybe that you have even visited on occasion. Think about for a moment the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. The memorial invites the viewer below ground level, ironically enough, to read the names of the wars more than 58,000 dead and missing on the face of two 247-foot uh, black granite walls. And this simple structure elicited such powerful emotions by those individuals that have visited it, that many sometimes have been found weeping when they found the name of their loved one. Or how about this memorial? This is the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York City. This was dedicated on the 10th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. The memorial includes the twin reflecting pools that sit in the footprints of the World Trade Center towers. The pools are surrounded uh, by panels listing the names of each person who died, not only in the 2001 attacks, but also the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 as well. The memorial features the largest man-made waterfalls in North America. Or how about this memorial? This too is found in Washington, D.C. It is the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. Uh, the memorial is in dedication to uh, the minister, the activist, and civil rights leader. Uh, it is located beside the National Mall in the West Potomac Park. It is carved by a Chinese sculpture uh, by the name of Lee Ixen, and the memorial is inspired by the line from Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 uh, speech, I Have a Dream. 
Well, sometimes memorials are found closer to home as well. And this particular memorial with this Ohio historical marker is found down in Bedford Heights, Ohio at the Zion Memorial Cemetery. You can see what it says on this historical marker here. Um, it says on surrounding walls, one can read the names of the family members lost in the Holocaust and thereafter who otherwise may not have a fitting grave. Other inscriptions relating to significant historical events also appear. The monument is the site of an annual commemoration ceremony between the Jewish high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to recall the Holocaust and departed victims. As required by Jewish traditions, graves are to be visited by mourners between the high holidays to say Kaddish, the prayer for the dead. We'll find out what that prayer is in a few moments. I had the opportunity uh, to visit this a few days ago and recorded a video that I'd like for you to watch at this time. So we've been talking a little bit about the Festival of Purim, and in many ways it is a memorial, just like the memorials that I showed you that are all through the United States. Perhaps there, perhaps there are some that are in your own backyard as well. This one here is at Zion Memorial Cemetery in Bedford. And you'll see behind me here this granite memorial that symbolizes the remembrance of families that were lost in the Holocaust. There's also a prayer by a rabbi here that says, Father of compassion who dwells on high, in his powerful compassion may he recall with compassion the devout, the upright, and the perfect ones. The holy congregations who gave their lives for the sanctification of the name, who were beloved and pleasant in their lifetime, and in their death were not parted. They were quicker than eagles, and stronger than lions to do their creator's will. May Hashem remember them for good and the, with them the other righteous of the world. May he before our eyes exact retribution of the spilled blood of his servants. Hashem will give might to his people. Hashem will bless his people with peace. This is a prayer that was written by Rabbi Isidore Pickholtz. I don't know who that is, but it symbolizes a memorial for those that have been lost. Their blood has been shed, and those that come here light candles to remember those that we've lost. Again, memorials are a part of preserving our memory. Well, I hope you enjoyed that video from the Zion Memorial Cemetery down in Bedford Heights. <clears throat> As we continue to think about memorials, let's think about them in terms of activities. Think in our own calendar of days like 4th of July. Uh, there are certain rituals that come along with that particular day. Um, we're celebrating our independence as a nation. However, uh, we usually celebrate it through barbecues and fireworks. Think about Thanksgiving. That was a, another uh, 
tradition that was developed that we usually do the same thing every year. Think of Thanksgiving when we traditionalize those first immigrants to the United States that survived this new land with the help of Native Americans. Number one, we have a set menu, don't we? Usually we have turkey, mashed potatoes, uh, stuffing, pumpkin pie. We usually have a tradition after we eat the meal of falling asleep in front of football games. Uh, it begins a new season of the year. The holiday season begins. So there are certain traditions that come along with these type of annual events. And so we want to think a little bit about this memorial of Purim. How is it that the Jews celebrate uh, Purim on an annual basis? Now, in a normal year, not one that has been limited with restrictions of COVID, a typical celebration has the following elements to it. You hear the reading of the scroll of Esther that is also called the Megillah. Uh, most Jews will head to their local synagogue to hear the whole Esther story. And they not only listen to the book once, but there is a second reading, usually once on Purim night and once uh, on Purim during the day. Now, what's interesting is when Haman's name is mentioned as the scroll is read, um, those that are listening to it usually use this type of thing right here. It's a Gregor, which is a noisemaker. And so when Haman's name is read, they will usually do this type of thing to try to drown out the name of Haman. Or maybe they stamp their feet uh, as that name is read. Um, the scroll is read usually, as you can see in this picture here, from a handwritten parchment scroll. And there is some age-old tunes sometimes that are read uh, or sung, rather, along with the reading. A second thing that is done during Purim is to give to the needy. You heard that when we read Esther chapter 9. One of Purim's primary themes is Jewish unity. And Haman tried to kill them. They were all in danger together. And so they celebrate together as well. Therefore, on Purim Day, there is this special emphasis on caring for the less fortunate. Usually there's the giving of money or food to at least two needy people during the daylight hours of Purim. Uh, in fact, many of the synagogues will also collect money for the poor. Also on Purim, they make a donation to whoever asks. They don't check a background to see if this is individual is worthy of that help or not. A third thing that is done is the sending of food gifts to relatives. Uh, on Purim, there is the emphasis of the importance of friendship and community. And so there is the sending of gifts to uh, friends, and usually it's food. And on Purim Day, they often send a package of at least two ready-to-eat food items along with beverages. Uh, it is preferable sometimes that these gifts be delivered via a third party uh, so that 
this individual giving it is not receiving accolades for their generosity of giving food. Then there is the feast. Usually after the reading of the uh, scroll a second time, there's a meal. And during the course of Purim Day, families will gather. They may invite a guest or two and celebrate with a festive meal. Uh, traditionally, this meal begins before sundown to last well into the evening. Uh, tables are usually bedecked with nice tablecloth and candles and silverware. They put their uh, best utensils forward. Uh, there's plenty of meat to be consumed. There's plenty of wine. There's some Jewish songs that are sung. And there is plenty of laughter. And then there's the third element, and that is carnival. On Purim, children and adults alike traditionally dress in costumes. Uh, this is an allusion to the unseen hand of God in the Purim miracle. As we've mentioned several times during this series, there is not the mention of God in the book of Esther at all. Now, to get a feel for the celebration of Purim, especially in Jerusalem, uh, there's a video clip that I want you to watch uh, to see some of the festivities that occur. Hope you enjoy. So I hope that you have enjoyed uh, that video of some of the activities that happen at Purim, uh, especially in Jerusalem. Looks like it's quite a fun affair. So I want to finish this book by asking a question, and that is, so what does the ending of Esther mean to us? Let's come back to our metaphor of the chessboard for a few moments as we conclude. After the long struggle of facing a fierce opponent and taking chances along the way, there comes a time to make final moves for victory. And when the last move is played and the player is using the queen's gambit, they checkmate their opponent, opponent. And when that takes place, there is this wonderful celebration that we would love to be a part of too. We see it in our own world. When our favorite team wins a championship, they raise a trophy, they have a parade. Their special memorabilia that is made. People want to remember the time when they overcame the odds and that they were a part of a team that was a winner. They don't want to forget that. And they want to share that feeling with other people. Just think back of when the Cavs won the championship. Threw a million people to the parade. And to this very day, there are those pieces of garments, whether hats or t-shirts or whatever, that just celebrates that moment in time. And so that's in many ways is what the last chapter of Esther is all about. Salvation requires celebration. And what we have seen in the book of Esther is the deliverance through the hidden hand of God for individuals like Esther and Mordecai and collectively the nation of Israel. They were under a death sentence that was reversed. And Mordecai and Esther reversed that death sentence upon the people. Now, during this time of Lent, 
we anticipate a day of celebration through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Jesus' victory over the grave that frees us from our own death sentence, that death sentence that was on us since the time we were born. And one of the reasons for the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus is to free us from the fear of death. Listen to this verse out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The writer of the book of Hebrews is reminding us that we all live under a sentence of fear. And that's the way the Jewish people were too. They lived under the fear of this decree by Haman and Mordecai and Esther come as individuals who serve the nation by intervening for them, by asking for a second decree, by telling the people to defend themselves. And at the end of it all, what we find taking place is after the victory, there is great celebration, they memorialize it, and it becomes a part of an annual celebration. Now, in a sense, Haman is kind of like the embodiment of Satan. You know, he is out to kill and steal and destroy human beings. Esther and Mordecai become a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, remember, they are not perfect individuals. Esther and Mordecai have some shortcomings. But in some real wonderful way, they foreshadow the fact that Jesus intervenes on our behalf. And through his death and burial and resurrection, he reverses the curse of death. And now we celebrate Jesus and his victory over the grave. We're a few weeks out still from Easter. However, we continue to come together and worship so that we might make some noise because we are free. And so as we conclude our service this morning, I want to conclude with a prayer. And this prayer is a reminder for us to continue to walk in, in full assurance of our faith and in the security of God's love and forgiveness upon us. Would you pray with me, please? By your help, we beseech you, O Lord, our God. May we walk eagerly in the same charity with which, out of love for the world, your Son, Jesus Christ, handed himself over to death to free us from the fear of death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Keep our hearts strong. May we have a sense of assurance. May we be free. And may we have the courage, Lord, to step into a moment, our own queen's gambit, to be like Esther and to be like Mordecai. Amen and amen. Thanks for being with us online today. May you have a great week ahead. God bless each and every one of you. We'll see you soon.